Find your feet with the Find Your Feet podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Find Your Feet podcast. Wow, time is flying and on this occasion I really want to take a moment to thank everyone for their support. I'm excited to tell you that last week we were announced the Telstra Tasmanian Small and Succeeding Business of the Year. Whoa, we did not expect that. And it's thanks to the community such as yourselves who have been supporting us in all the endeavours that we're doing at Find Your Feet, from our Find Your Feet tours to the Find Your Feet podcast, from the retail store to the online store, to my training resources and the newly released or up and comingly released trail running guidebook. It's all of it and it's all working and we can't thank you enough for being a part of it. So please don't forget to continue to support us in everything that we're doing. All right, I am also super excited about this podcast. I know I've said that a number of times. I know you probably all giggle at me every time I say it, but this one really, really blew my socks off. Why is that? Because of the vulnerability in this podcast I didn't really go into the podcast with any expectations because I'm learning not to do that. I always find that the conversations go on tangents and I need to follow them and allow our guests to speak for themselves. But this podcast contains so much vulnerability, so much emotion that Anne and I were sitting here nearly in tears. Anne was born and bred in Hobart and graduated from the University of Tasmania in 1992 with a Bachelor of Education and she came out with first-class honours. Since then, she's been a teacher, although she took a short period of time working for Swimming Tasmania here in Hobart. She began competitive swimming when she was only nine years old, going on to represent Tasmania at Australian Open and Age Group Championships, and more recently in Masters Championships too. She turned her hand, though, to marathon and open water swimming in 1996, But it wasn't for another 10 years and until 2006 when Anne began planning the fulfilment of her lifelong dream to be the first Tasmanian to swim the English Channel. Anne trained intensively for 18 months and we delved a lot into this during this podcast and finally completed her swim on the 8th of August in 2006. It took her 10 hours and 58 minutes and 32 seconds to complete the channel. This time has placed her in the top 50 channel swims of all time. But what was more important about this was the humility in which Anne went into it and the challenges that she overcame both before and during, but then, and probably this is the biggest take-home lesson for me, after she completed the swim. The swim was for a charity and cancer awareness, children's cancer awareness, and this threw her into the spotlight. And what was so apparent was how she had not been able to fully prepare herself for this period of time afterwards. So since the swim, I guess Anne has been on almost a very reflective journey as a mother, a teacher, in her career, and then in her return to swimming. She talks very, very openly and honestly about the challenges of raising very high-achieving children and also to being a high-achieving adult herself. She is now a much sought-after motivational speaker and I know that you will gain great insights into what it's like to juggle multiple high-level things all at the same time and go on to achieve your greatest goals. Oh, 
You're going to love this conversation. Here it is with Anne. But I've loved that process of being able to like reflect on sort of the journey that you've been on. And it's really, really interesting because you start to see the patterns. Because if you sort of think about like snapshots in time, you don't, you don't pick up on those patterns. And the patterns are often things that are like your roadblocks or the things that are holding you back. And then you, you go through a big transition point and you, you kind of know you've been through it, but you can't work out why. And then you start to see the patterns are changing. It's, it's pretty amazing. Wow, yeah. 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 So, Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. But um, I, I'm just going to roll with yep, the conversation. That's fine. No worries. And, um, we're going to see where it leads. But I guess like what I really wanted to know, and it's been ages since I feel like we've had like a proper chat. <laughs> I think last time was it over. It is ages. Over a coffee. Over a coffee. Yeah, three, four years ago when I was yeah. with Swimming Taz. Yeah. And yeah. Was really, that was a really amazing conversation. And then off the back of it, I think you got me to come along and talk to some of the juniors that I you were I still talk about with. that now. Really? Yep. I still talk to people oh. about that. What an amazing guest speaker you were. Oh, just sharing your journey and what you've... Ex- I was talking to people at school about it today, oh, actually. Bless you. Thank yeah. you. I was... I looking up, As I walked out of that conversation, I actually was really nervous because that swimming environment, I mean, it definitely feels like it sort of has this... It's almost like a religion beneath the surface of, like, the do's and the don'ts. And I think I walked in and just shared a few things and thoughts that potentially are breaking out of that religious mould a little bit. And I just could feel the presence of the coaches just kind of watching and listening in. I, just, I think you were honest and that's what they needed to hear. Yeah. You know, they needed to hear what actually happens for swimmers that were your age and um, because you're not the only one that that's happened to and happens yeah. to now. I think your honesty was huge. Oh, bless you. But I, I actually wouldn't mind pulling on that a little bit. I'm just wondering, you worked in Swimming Tasmania environment till a few years ago was it now that you left? yeah I went back to teaching three three years ago now so I was there started four years ago um mm. was there for nine months okay yeah so I, I was interested to know and feel free if you feel not comfortable talking about it but whether you feel that the swimming environment has changed since we were elite athletes or I'll call it elite athletes because I guess we trained like elite athletes we we were to butts off in the the pool whether you feel that environment has changed much or whether you feel like the the patterns and the way they train and the way they approach elite competition has stayed relatively the same um also the mindsets of just working really really hard like sometimes I felt like we were working hard not necessarily smart in the pool so I'm wondering kind of what your thoughts are around that yeah it's interesting um I think training programs today are still based around work, lots of work, and I think we did overtrain when we were younger, when mm. I look back. In fact, I think if I was to swim the channel today, I'd do it very differently to um, the training and the prep for it would be very different to what I even did 10 years ago because mm. I've found out so much more since um, that event. But, um, yeah, I think swimming's become more of a business now, Um when I was training and competing in an elite level as a much younger person than what I am now, we didn't pay our coaches. Um, mm. They did it on a voluntary basis and I think it's become more of a business um, and the focus has shifted 
from the athlete to making money in many respects, mm. which I think is really sad because I think it's causing a lot of swimmers to burn out um, and the sport loses a lot of swimmers as a result of that. Yeah. And, it, I mean, you definitely get your young superstars coming up through the ranks, but it is a sport where you can be a super athlete at, you know, an older age relative to athlete terms. And, you know, I definitely noticed that there were very few sort of older swimmers left in certainly in our squad by the time I left yeah I think and that's you know that's certainly evident still today you know my daughter finished in year 12 because the demands of college far outweighed um, where she was going to go with her swimming and I think it's really sad because she had so much potential but she had to do what was right for her and there was no incentive to keep her there um, or no follow-up to try and get her back and Hmm. I've just gone through a similar thing with my son who's in year 11, 17, and he has stopped competing at, at um, a state level now and he's just going swimming a couple of times a week in his own time um, just mm. to keep his fitness there. But, yeah, it's, it's sad. They seem to get to that age, 17, 18, and the dropout rate is very high. We retain very few So what do you think it swimmers. is? Is it, the, um, is it coming from the organisation, like the very top level or the coaches, or is it uh, sort of a way that is just fostered through the sport where athletes think they can't, you know, do both because... I, mean, I, think, it, I think it's that. I think it's a way that's sort of fostered through the sport that at finding that balance, mm. um, that seems to be lacking these days. Um, both my children are high achievers so the amount of time that they put into their studies is immense Um, and trying to find that balance between study and exercise I'm sure they could have continued to do both uh, but their focus changed and it was all or nothing Mm -hmm. so they yeah I think I think that's what it is Mm -hmm. so what was your role at Swimming Tasmania exactly Um, I was community sport administrator, so um, that job had a very wide job description. So I looked after the development programs and the development squads um, Mm. here in Tasmania, and that was a statewide um, position, so I travelled around the state to see what was going on. Support for the coaches as well. Um, Yeah, it was a big job. Yeah, that's a huge role, and... So what did you feel was the greatest challenges in that role for you, other than obviously the breadth of the work? Um, Probably lack of resources. Um, You know, we are isolated here in Tasmania in many respects, so you don't have access to the resources that a lot of the mainland, our mainland counterparts have. Um, So lack, lack of funding and lack of resources to be really able to do what we wanted to do. You know, we were, we were able to provide our swimmers with some great opportunities but not enough Mm. um so you know being able to foster coach development as well um and and obviously by fostering coaching development that's going to improve our swimmers as Mm. well um and providing something for that mid-range so that we retain our swimmers when they get to those older age groups, when they do plateau and they see no incentive to move forward. So to be able to provide something to keep them in the sport um, so it well, it well extends beyond their 16, 17, 18 years of age. Yeah. Writing the book and reflecting on... So I spent pretty much 15 years submerged in this... Well, 15 
the first 15 years of my life submerged in a swimming pool or water in some form or other. So I left the sport as an elite competitor when I was 16 and transitioned into orienteering. But when I reflect on those years, particularly after puberty, I realized that there was very, very, well, there was no information given to our squad or the um, swimmers about what happens when you go through puberty as an elite athlete, especially in the pool. And there was something very, very sharp about that transition where you'd be on this huge growth spurt. You're obviously getting a lot more strength through your core and your, your upper body. And then you hit that puberty and something changes. And I just kind of feel like that is a, that was a huge mental thing for me because not only do you become a bit insecure in your body and in your bathers and sort of the feeling like well certainly when I was going through it we were doing skin fold testing and Mm -hmm. we were in the gym and we were doing like crackdowns on our nutrition and it definitely was a really challenging time but then at the same time you've just got this plateau of performance Mm. and you don't know where it's coming from so you start to question yourself like am I training hard enough am I just not talented enough and I felt that that is such a huge gap now in that swimming world and probably athlete world across many sports. What do you think? Yeah, about no, that? I absolutely agree with that. I think education, there's a real need for education around those areas, and mm. I think that would enhance retention in the sport. Um, I know Swimming Australia did roll out a program with some of the ex Olympians um, in talking about that. Mm. Um, that was happening at a stage when I left Swimming Tasmania and so I'm not sure how that all evolved but they obviously recognised it as a real need Mm. and a necessity in order to try and retain swimmers and to educate them so that they had a better understanding of what was happening to them Mm. and could stick those plateaus and those changes out. Yeah, because if you think about some of our elite athletes in in any sport and even people at school, like kids at school that are high achievers, what do you think is the the one ingredient, like the, the most important ingredient that those people have that helps them to become those high achievers as opposed to the, the tier below that are itching to get there but haven't quite made it? I think they're very self-driven um, mm-hmm. and intrinsically motivated. Mm-hmm. Um, and just have that desire to succeed and be the best that they can be. I think the trouble with that too, though, is that the best is never good enough in their eyes and that causes a lot of problems for those high achievers that we have. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting because the reflections that came to me thinking about, you know, the journey that I went on was definitely that... Um, I probably grew up in a family that didn't necessarily just prize or um, praise you on how hard you worked, but also did praise on the result. And we had coaches that also acknowledged the result and not necessarily the hard work that you were to get you there. In. And I think that it led to this mindset that doing more would make me be more or be a better person. And I see that trap a lot and I see it in adults as well and I'd love to talk more about what you've gone on to do since your swimming days and not just in the work sector but wondered what you think about that when you look at the athletes that you were working with in your role at Swimming Tasmania. Yeah you know absolutely I've I've had personal experience with my daughter um, who ended up with quite serious mental health issues Mm -hmm. as a result of striving to be the best she could and her best which was exceptional was never 
good enough in her eyes. Mm. Um, I think I have a great, much greater understanding now of an empathy for mm. for other, not just swimmers, any athletes, any people, any students mm. that I teach um, that show those similar signs to what she did. Um, and I think you're right, your performance can be based on one single event that may be, you know, 30 seconds long, yet you've put in months and months of hard work and kilometres and kilometres of, you know, so much dedication, so much commitment, and it comes down to that one race. And if you don't perform, um, just the devastation of that and the, the flow-on effects it can, it can have on not just you but those around you and impact on all other areas of your life as well. Yeah. That really resonates with me, especially as like coming from that 50 meter sprint freestyle. Mm. I remember, you know, one year feeling like maybe that was the year that I might have that result on the national stage and missing the start. Like I missed it by, you know, a few hundredths of a second, but it was enough to just be that difference between getting a nice clean break into the water, feeling fresh, feeling confident to suddenly feeling like you were at the end of the field and playing catch up and panicking and yeah, so probably when I asked you that question about what do you think that trait is, that self-driven, I definitely definitely agree with and it definitely resonates sort of with what I've observed. But I also think that it's um, perseverance. Oh, definitely. And I don't think that's taught. I don't think it's even taught in school. I, I perseverance and resilience is a yeah. big one as well. I mean, I don't know how you teach that, but... I remember um, when I f- was racing and orienteering and there was this beautiful girl who's one of my best friends now and she wasn't necessarily the best. She had quite a few good results but you wouldn't have said that she was the best in Australia or the best in the world. She went on to represent Australia in her running uh, coming out of the sport of orienteering which is quite phenomenal because most orienteers are good in the bush and you put them on a, on a flat road <laughs> and they, <laughs> it's not so pretty. But um, yeah, just... You know, talking to her, she was just so happy to just pace herself and to just sit in there and sit in there and sit in there and understand that one day the kids or the people that are at the top are going to fall off and you might go past them and and the tides will turn. But we don't learn that because it sort of feels like it's coaching for gratification for that race coming up on the weekend, not having that really, really, really long-term view. And what are your thoughts? Yeah, look, I... I think back to myself and I've never really stopped. So I guess I've got that perseverance trait within me. Um, I really regret when I walked away from the sport when I was 18 and maybe I didn't have the perseverance at that point in time. Mm -hmm. I'd finished year 12. I had plateaued. I just didn't feel my swimming was going anywhere. And I started work at the end of year 12 and I left the sport and no one ever tried to talk me back into coming back like there was you know nobody talked me through it that's what was missing I needed somebody to say no you've still got so much potential you've still got so many places you can go and I I really regret that Um, I never did fully walk away from the sport but I walked away from it long enough not to be able to get back to where I was when I was 18 um, to be able to then come back and perhaps tick off and achieve what I would have liked to have achieved then yeah but with that perseverance trait, I guess I went on to um, to find new goals and pursue those, which still involved my swimming. Um, but 
Yeah, I think that was the biggest thing for me. There was ne- there was no one, and I see that today with swimmers who walk away today. There's no one there to say to counsel them to mm-hmm. to make sure that they're making the right decision um, for the right reasons. Yeah, exactly. Like it, you, it keeps coming back to needing to be that very self-driven athlete, but also an athlete that understands to some degree some emotional intelligence and be they're willing to be vulnerable in that moment and reach out for help. Because if you don't reach out for help, it doesn't seem to come your way. Like That's exactly say. right. Yeah. And it's probably because of that short short-staffed, under-resourced, that, that there aren't enough people just sitting on the sideline looking in. But, um, I, you know, I really was pretty eye-opening working up at the Australian Institute of Sport and the athletes that are on the full scholarships there and just the plethora of people in their, you know, inner support network who are the eyes and ears. And, I mean, my role there was literally just to to live in the residences and, and be that eyes for the athletes and pick up the ones who are a bit subdued at dinner, you know, maybe spending a bit more time in their rooms and you can start to pick up maybe Mm. something's not quite right. And, you know, I was paid to do that job. So they're obviously recognising it as an issue, but I I don't really feel that that's coming down into our development ranks, which is where our lead athletes are coming from. That's exactly right. You know, that's one thing that's really lacking here is sports psychology Mm. um, within the – well, from what I witnessed and from what I've seen over the years, just in our swimming programs, um, we don't have the sports psychologists here. Yeah. Um, And sports psychologists, like, the ones that I ended up working with at periods in my journey were very focused on, like, what do you do when you're racing, how you're approaching your racing, but I found not so um, easily able to talk about those bigger picture questions around how do you juggle study or work and being an athlete and the fact that sometimes excuse the language but like shit happens and you're dealing with shit and you're trying to deal with these huge ambitions and I think that's what's lacking that's what's needed yeah do you think that the school system's changing to address any of these things like that emotional intelligence side or the you know the understanding of perseverance because I mean it's not just in an, in the athlete world. Yeah, I think um, it's, that's a really interesting question. You know, we're being a school teacher, we're very restricted by the Australian curriculum and what we have to deliver in the framework in in the framework that we have to deliver in the time periods that we have. Um, and in some ways, I think that has lost. Those uh, discussions of perseverance, we can only do so much. And this curriculum, it's taken that focus away. It doesn't allow us that time to really work on um, life skills and life lessons that need to be addressed. Um, we, we were having a discussion the other day at work. Uh, we had a staff PD and we were talking about the lack of resilience that we see day in, day out from mm-hmm. our students. And... The discussions around why that is the case um, and perseverance came into that conversation as well you know it's too easy if they can't do something these days I can't do it it's not well let's work out how you can do it let's sit down and I, I can't do it and the hands go up they, they don't want to it, I don't know if it's they don't want to push through but they don't know how to push through where do you think that's coming from then because it oh, seems look. to change. I mean, yeah. I certainly don't. I sound like old. I'm like when I was young. No, but <laughs> no, but I don't really remember my friends having 
having that kind of mentality. No. I mean, we all just gritted our teeth and buried our heads and worked hard. And, and that's gone, that work ethic, and that just seems to – I don't know if it's oh, – you know, there's all this discussion of social media. I don't know if technology and the different distractions our youth have today have an impact on that. Um, the busy lives of their parents, I, mm. I – what I see at school and then I think back to when I was a student and the support that I had from my parents pulls apart um you know both my parents work full-time but they were always there for me Mm. and I find a lot of the kids that I'm associated with are left to their own devices Mm. so they have to work out a lot of life lessons by themselves yeah Um, which is really tough and you you can think when you're in that that period of 16 to 20 where you're trying to make all these huge decisions you feel like you're an adult probably because you've been yeah on social media and in that adult world for so much of your life but you're not mature in your thinking and and that was something the book really highlighted to me again was just yeah like how how little you had to deal with things (laughs) that's exactly right Yeah. yeah i also think i don't know like i noticing that there's definitely a transition away from the traditional like training or teaching kids and when I did teaching like teaching kids up to get into university where now university is not seen as like necessarily the the thing you have to go on and do that there's so much more choice so it feels like maybe the competition's coming out of Mm. that sort of real Mm. like head-on struggle to get you know the grades to get into uni is that is that true? Or? Um, from where I am at school, I still see there's that's a real focus. Like yeah, okay. our school only goes up to year 10 and then they go on to college and there's a real push for those kids to go yeah. to college, but it's not for all of them. No. And I think that puts a lot of undue pressure on them yeah. trying to sort out what they want to do. Um, our kids are at the stage now where they're choosing, so those that are going on to college are choosing their subjects and and our year eights and nines are choosing their subjects for next year, looking further ahead at pathways. And, you know, it's that a lot of them are stressed because they, they're they not able to do what they want to do because they don't feel they've got the intelligence to be able mm. to do so. And it's, uh, you know, I find them forever reassuring that there's always a way to get to where you want to get. It mm. may not be the straightforward way, but never lose sight of your dream. You know, you can get there. You're just going to have to go around a different way to get it. And I'm always driving that home it's to my um, quite hard students. For these students, and because like our parents have come from that mentality where you know you go to school and you get into uni and you pick your pathway and you have one pathway and that's your career and you come out the other end and you retire whereas I think for us now it's it's deemed completely acceptable to change jobs frequently and definitely to try one thing and like my gosh I mean I studied medical research and I've been running a retail store and you know definitely wasn't part of the plan but you know it's and, it, and it's almost it's almost deemed really good to like change pathways and do lots of different things and I reckon that must it well I find it even is quite a hard um wrestle because you've got that voice of your parents and then you've got this peer sort of okayism coming through at the bottom oh yeah that's right yeah isn't it fascinating yeah it is so do you mind me asking and I don't need personal details but as a parent with your daughter when she was really struggling with this 
transition and these big decisions, like how you negotiated that, because I think it will resonate with a lot of other parents as they help. Yeah, look, it was it was a really difficult period. Um, um, my well, my ex husband and I were separated, and we mm. were se- we were separated at the time, and um, hadn't identified anything that was going on for her at all. Um, and it was her friends at school that actually alerted me to the fact that she was wow. having some mental health issues. Um, being an intelligent girl, she was very good at covering things up. So I, the only thing that had changed that I could see was that she decided that she had enough of swimming. And it came out of the blue. Like she had just um, swum exceptionally well at nationals um, in the open water nationals. She had done exceptionally well, won the open water series here in Tasmania, the juniors, and then she just, that's it, I'm giving up. So that came out of left field and then everything started. And it was a really hard road for us all to travel um, Mm. because she shut us out totally. Um, And I had always, throughout my life, I've always been able to fix things that aren't right and this was something I couldn't fix. And so it it was a really challenging road to navigate for a good two years Mm. um probably till the end of year 12 so this started in the march of year 11 and you know i think she's always going to have mental health issues but she certainly deals with them a lot better now and openly speaks about them Mm. um she actually came in and spoke to a college assembly um for me at her old school and um it was it was an amazing empowered speech um, which resonated with a lot of students. Um, it was a very honest account of what had gone mm. on for her in that period of time. Um, yeah, just I've got a much greater understanding and a much greater empathy now for people that experience these things but also for parents because mm. it, was, it was so hard to find support for us on how to deal with it like how do we deal with this without um pushing without pushing her over the edge saying the wrong thing which 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 i mean she she was suicidal and um yet she was getting exceptional grades at school um beautiful group of friends life was good for her um and that was what was so hard to understand and even to this day I'm still not aware if there was a single event which triggered it. Um, she's never been able to actually verbalise that or say what caused it. She said she'd been feeling low for a very long time. A lot of that started in the pool. Mm. She had um, poor body image mm. issues. She felt, um, compared to others in her squad, that she um, was on the larger side, which she wasn't at all, Um and she used to train so hard, but the results were never quite there. And so it was all a, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I really empathise with her story because for me, like I, I certainly struggled with mental health and anorexia and we've talked about it on the podcast and actually mm. was really fortunate to podcast uh, Juliet Thompson from the Butterfly Foundation. Went yes. to Sydney and, and did a talk with her and um. I thought that writing the book would give me clarity on why things happened. And I just sometimes think that you're actually, there isn't a why. Like, no. It can just be the right concoction of ingredients. You know how sometimes you make a cake and one day it tastes incredible and then you think you made the exact same recipe and cooked it for the same period of time and it just tastes different and it looks like a flop. 
Like, mm. and I feel like that can sometimes just be that way. And yeah. I certainly think that that's what happened for me was it was just the right little cocktail of snippets of, you know, um, a name being called by a boy and some skin fold testing and then poor performances when you thought you deserved them and, you know, parent, you know, parental issues that happened and the loss of a coach at one point who I'd really relied on and, and none of it, there was no one trigger. It was just that perfect little yeah. storm that eventually kind of brought you to your knees. And I, and it, it just, I think it took me a long time to understand that I couldn't think my way out of it. In the end, mm. I had to kind of just take a step back and let my heart tell me what it wanted to do. And sometimes that can be the most surprising thing, such as needing to walk away from something that you've always been really freaking good at and yeah. define yourself yes. by to some degree. Yeah. yeah. But then you've got that huge hole that you're suddenly then trying to work out, well, yeah. well, what do I do now? <laughs> and that, but that's interesting because she didn't seem to fall in that hole because she then, when she stopped assuming, she just threw herself 160% into her studies and it became, I wouldn't say obsessive because she's just always been a hard worker and had an incredible work ethic, but all-consuming and finding that balance then with her to have a bit of a social life, mm. to, it, you sort of then, I guess it, it created other issues. We are, yeah. I did that too. Yeah. Myself. It's like, well, I guess um, in many ways for her, that was her way of, it, it, of um, ignoring yeah. all those dark voices in her head. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, avoiding all my problems and having to face up to my problems, I swim. Yeah. So that, yeah. that's my outlet. Yeah. Yeah. Mine, yeah, definitely was running and throwing myself into things. But it was interesting because I like I actually um, didn't really wake up to the fact that I sort of had some, you know, probably dealt with some of the bigger issues like the anorexia, but I hadn't really really dealt with a few other things that I didn't even know I needed to deal with until I turned 30 and it was just like a like a switch went off in my brain and I suddenly was like huh shit (laughs) um and I went to work I went to see this psychologist who'd been recommended to me and actually the the switch really happened because a um a doctor said to me I went in just to get a checkup and she just looked me up and down and said honey you need to find your femininity and I was just like my what (laughs) I'm like sitting there in shorts and running singlet and um anyway so I went to see this guy and um he you know he he raised this concept of like voices in my head and I was like, what voices? Like I, I had become that good at getting on and doing stuff that I couldn't hear voices. And, and he'd ask some question and he'd see me wriggling and I didn't know I was wriggling. And he'd be like, I can see you wriggling. What are you feeling? And I'd be like, what do you mean? What am I feeling? Like, I don't know what I'm feeling. Like I don't feel anything. Mm. And I'd just become that good at blocking it out. And, and the doing had allowed me to kind of keep ahead of the yes <laughs> keep yeah ahead of the whole. keep ahead of it all yeah. yeah and then it wasn't until I stopped that I sort of started to really like be able to sort of work through some of those things mm. and I I think it just became like came for me came from a family where we didn't um we didn't talk about emotions like we were doers we were all doers and we were very good at doing and it was great it was great when everything was great um but it just meant that you know if you had a if you got angry you sort of ran outside and climbed a tree or Mm. if you were sad you went and kind of jumped on your pony or you went and hung out with your friends and you just kind of always just chucked it away and thought you dealt with it and I I think then when you get to the bigger kind of questions that well I ran out of trees to climb and (laughs) I didn't have a horse to jump on and 
Yeah, so I don't know. I felt it was just in, yeah. Again, yeah. probably insights coming from writing and just sort of recognizing that journey a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting, like really interesting. Sorry, I've gone on a real tangent. No, that's fine. <laughs> I always go off on tangents. Yeah, that's cool. fine. <laughs> okay, cool. So, um, so can we like talk a bit more about your swimming? Because so, how many years ago was it that you set this goal of swimming the English Channel? I actually set the goal when I was 16 years of age. Whoa. So um, when I was 16, Des Renford was doing incredible things and I thought, I want to do that one day. I want to swim the English Channel. And that was that was when I first had um, the vision that that's what I wanted to do. Yet I stopped swimming competitively as an 18-year-old um, and I didn't – I never lost sight of the dream, but I just, you know, I thought I'd, I'd want to do it and I'm going to do it one day. Got involved with Surf Life Saving, and then um, my brother started coaching. He actually got into coaching um, with Chris Wedd, who had coached mm. me through my childhood years, and that brought me back into the sport. So that was in my early 20s, about 24, I think I was. Um, and so I got back into swimming competitively again, but enjoying it. Mm. I was doing it for a very different reason to how when I'd competed as a as a child and then as a young adolescent I didn't have the focus on going to nationals and winning state titles and all that sort of stuff and so I got back in and thoroughly enjoyed it and started to enjoy the sport again got drug tested for the first time I think it's the only time there's ever been um a SADA at a Tasmanian swim meet up at the old Mowbray pool mm. when I was 25 years old in the 400 IM. They just randomly picked people and I got chosen. So that was a whole experience for me. Yep. <laughs> um, but, yeah, and then um, I decided in my late 20s that I was going to do it then and um, did got back into swimming quite seriously and with Chris and went and did a few major um, marathon swims on the mainland. I competed in the Sunset Coast Marathon in Western wow. Australia. That was an international event. So that a was marathon a in swimming is 25. 25 kilometres. That is a long way in the pool, I mean, in open water. Yeah, that was a, that was an incredible event. I actually came down with chickenpox, <laughs> and <laughs> that was when I was – it must have been because I still had scars on me when I went to swim mm. and – we didn't think they'd let me swim. I got concealer. I got everything just to cover up because I couldn't. I couldn't swim at the pool when obviously I was. Mm. So I was swimming in the ocean, and yeah, I think um, Chris still talks about that swim. Um, he came over with me, and it was so rough. He kept losing sight of me on the support boat because the support boat would be up here, and I'd be down there, and then we'd swap. And yeah, that was wow. that was a very hard swim. I got stung by. Um, jellyfish and had the remnants of the welts for months after and that was a hard swim but that was my first experience of doing anything like that so how long does it take to swim 25k in open water conditions like that I'm just trying to think what that one actually took me I think it was about um from memory about four hours 45 four hours yeah so what do you do before we get back to the English Channel, but what do you do for nutrition and hydration when you're swimming like that? Because a, a runner can, I mean, humans are actually the only 
creatures that I know on the planet that can eat and drink while they're actually moving. Mm. And runners can just take whatever they need when they need if they're carrying it on them. But for swimmers, it's a totally different story. Absolutely. I had to really experiment with my hydration and nutrition. Um, I think back to that swim and all I did was drink and it was just a, um, I think it was high five, a high five mm-hmm. um, powder. powder. Yeah. And that was that was it. I didn't eat anything. Um, even... Even with my channel swim, all I consumed was that high five um, drink and mashed banana in water for the whole duration of that swim because Which I couldn't. Was how long? Almost eleven hours, ten hours, fifty-eight wow. minutes. Um, I experimented with a lot of things. I sought a lot of advice from people that had done it in the past, uh, but nothing would agree with my stomach, and I felt. Uh, I think I'd do it very differently now. Like yeah. I feel like I've learned a lot more in recent years to what I had that 10 years ago, 11, 12, 13 years ago. Are there any repercussions of having the salt water in your mm. mouth for that long? Is do you, I mean, you must consume a lot of salt water. I'm yeah, guessing. you do. And um, I had done my research with that and I used a mouthwash. Um, okay. Each time I stopped to have a drink or to have a feed, I used a mouthwash. But my, my mouth was still very ulcerated at the end of the swim. Um, it did actually result in me being unable to have hot food for two weeks after because it was so badly ulcerated. Wow. Um, I had to be very careful not to cause further damage, but that was from just the exposure to the salt. To the salt, because mm. pulling all the fluids mm. out, of your, out of your tissues. Yeah. Yeah, wow, that's really, really interesting. Yeah, because, I mean, runners have just the problem of the, the shaking of the stomach, but you're lying prone in the water a lot mm. of the time as well. So you've got, like, different tummy postures that are probably really quite foreign to the human body. Like, you don't spend yeah, a lot of time true. lying on your belly. No, that's right. And yeah. I used to – and it makes me think about it now – all the big swims that I did used to suffer really quite serious indigestion by mm. the end of the swim, and maybe that's got something to do with it, tummy being in that position. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really fascinating because yeah. when we work with athletes, the ultra runners, like nutrition can be, you could have like the, the best, most elite athlete in the world and a good recreational hack of an athlete who knows how to fuel themselves. And I would probably put money on the recreational because it's that big a difference, mm. the, um, mm. the nutrition side. So the thing that kind of, I guess, you're feeding in nutrition is the the brain and keeping that central nervous system alive so what was what was the internal chatter like in during the actual swim itself did you so the actual channel yeah um it was amazing I think I was in such a positive mindset the day that I set off to do it I just remember standing on the shore at the start by myself because my support boat was probably 100 meters off the shore and it was five o'clock in the morning, standing on this English beach in my bay. There's no one in sight. And I just remember thinking, right, this is what you've been working towards. You've wanted to do this for years. This is a day at work and you don't stop till you get to the other side. So I had a really positive mindset that day and really only hit the wall at one point in the swim where my body was really rebelling against what my mind was telling it to do. And I drew on all the positive support and encouragement from the boat and that got me through and it was just a matter of keeping those arms rolling over. Mm. Um, Yeah, when I think about it, you know, I'd had a 
serious shoulder injury very close to going and had been told that I wouldn't be able to complete the swim. I was actually told I needed a shoulder reconstruction, that I wouldn't have been able to do it. But, um, you know, not knowing if my body was going to hold together, knowing there were so many, you rely so heavily on weather conditions and tides, you never know when things are going to change. So there's so many factors in that swim that are totally outside of your control. And I was very focused on the fact that I couldn't control any of that, but I could control what was going on in my head. Hmm. And so I was very mindful of um, of that and keeping my mind in check. I'd done a lot of uh, vis- visualisation before, ah, the, yeah, okay. um, before the swim, you know, and that, that helped me immensely. Mm. Um, Where, what instigated that, doing that mindful training? So talking to other swimmers other that had done it in the past and a lot of reading that I did as well. I read a lot of um, books and articles, people that had swum hmm. that particular swim in the past, particularly the channel. Uh, and that helped, you know, I, I made copious amounts of notes, mm-hmm. you know, I read books over and over again just to draw on people's knowledge and experience mm-hmm. because I think that's that sort of stuff's invaluable. You just, you can just learn so much Yeah. from doing that. I, my own, I've dabbled in doing mental training, uh, visualisation. I did, I used to use it quite a bit in orienteering but one thing I really struggled with was that feeling like I had an ego because when you're yeah. doing mental training, I guess you're picturing yourself succeeding. And, and you know, there's also that feeling of like, if I picture myself succeeding, am I going to jinx myself? Yeah, yeah. Did you have yeah. any of that emotion when you were doing the mental training? No, and it's so bizarre because I had always visualized the swim and visualized getting to the other side. But one thing I hadn't, given any thought to was returning home having been successful and I wasn't prepared for that and that was a that was just a weird euphoria and everything that followed when I did come back it was that was I found that really hard to to process and to for me I was fulfilling a lifelong dream Mm. I was going away to do to do this and if I was successful fantastic if I wasn't it had already been a successful journey with the fundraising that we had done and the awareness campaign for the Children's Cancer Institute and I'd never really visualized myself coming home successful even though I'd done all that visualization of a successful crossing so can you talk me through the emotional roller coaster that probably started I'm guessing, I'm guessing, but two-thirds of the way across where you started to know, okay, yeah, I've got this one in the bag, right through to, like, way after you got home. Like, tell me about that roller coaster. It's it's interesting. You should say two-thirds of the way across. It was probably the last four kilometres when I knew I'd beaten that last tide. Like, all the reading I'd done, a lot of people get within four kilometres of the French coast and the tide turns and they have they're just so exhausted or drained they they're swimming they're they're swimming forward but they're getting pushed back to England so when I knew I had got past that point and the end was within reach and they're going come on you can get in under 11 hours let's really kick in and let's get there I think and I'm not exaggerating I spent the last hour in tears um it still makes me choke up Mm. now um just thinking of those people 
behind me. Um, mm. My kids didn't come over with me, so they were back home and thinking of them. But especially those people that had driven me in my head that had passed away from cancer that I, mm. that I was... Um, that, they really got me through. Like yeah. they, and so that, that last four kilometres was a very emotional time for me. And it was still that disbelief when I was standing on the French coast, when I actually stood up, I ran out of the water. Um, I just remember them saying, run, Annie, run. And I'm here, I can't run. And I thought, I can, I can run. It was just that incredible adrenaline rush. And I ran up onto the beach and then it was just like, I look at footage now that I've still got at home and I'm standing there, I just I can't believe it. I've, I've mm. done it like I've actually done it. Because there had been a few roadblocks along the way. I never, when I started training for it in my 20s, it never eventuated. Um, after the pan pack trials, I'd returned back to training and was feeling quite ill. And Chris had said, you know, is there any chance you could be pregnant? And I said, um, oh, no, no, I'm just really <laughs> exhausted. Anyway, sure enough, I was pregnant with Hannah. So, oh, my gosh. So that was when oh everything went on hold. And Hannah came along and then... Gorgeous Lockie came along and so I then had a hiatus out of the sport and then at the age of 38 decided I've got to do this, it's now or never. So that's why that's I committed then. So that was all in my head as well Yeah, because I just never let it go. But then, yeah, I just remember going back to the boat, getting on the boat and we then had the four-and-a-half-hour boat trip back to England and... There were television crews when I got back and it was just, I wasn't ready for any of that at all. And then they were rushing footage back to London to get it back to Tasmania and that that just, yeah, I I found it really quite hard and confronting because when I got home, I just wanted to um, sink back into normal everyday life. But that just, it didn't happen. Um, Yeah, and I, I struggled with that. Did you ever go back to normal life or do you think that soon like literally changed your life it definitely changed I think it changed my life I you know very sadly my marriage broke down a year after that swim Mm. um and I know a lot of people blamed my swim on Mm. our marriage breakdown but I think it it made me acknowledge that we had problems Mm. within our marriage I think in many ways my channel swim and my training for it the 18 months out was my escape mechanism in many ways for both of us because Mm. my ex-husband was just and still is just an incredible man and he supported me to be able to do it and uh, led an incredible fundraising campaign to to get the the funds that we did for the children's Mm. you know he was fantastic and I think the swim made me um, strong enough at the end to be able to say and acknowledge look, we really have got some problems here and we mm. need to because it was all over um, I'm sort of going off on a tangent here when it was no, all over and I got back and there was this massive hype and then I because it was all over and it had been all consuming for such a whole, long time I fell in a big hole that's what big, I was big big hole yeah. and um was really hard to get myself out of it and I didn't know if the problems that we were having in our marriage was a result of that um so it definitely changed me it definitely changed me as a person um it it has helped me and it still continues to help me today to be able to push through some pretty difficult Mm -hmm. situations Mm -hmm. um if 
so you know the situations that are not swimming related just very different no but, you, but you're right that. you you learn so much about yourself and your mindsets and that you call it like the winning attitude that helps you through the grunts of life yeah, as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think in some ways that's what a lot of athletes chase in these ultra endurance yeah. sports that that insight into themselves and people talk about that a lot. Yeah, it was massive. It was yeah. massive. The other thing though that resonates with me as well was falling in that hole when I came back. Um, it was also this need that I felt and I felt I had to do it too, that I had to go on and do something bigger and better. And it took me a long time to to come to the realisation, no, I actually did what I wanted to achieve. I don't need to go off and do anything bigger and better. You know, there was intense pressure to go back and do a double crossing and I felt I had to go and do it. And it was like, I'm going to do it. I am going to do this. And then I started thinking, well, why? Why mm. do I want to do that? And there had been discussion about me going down and swimming in Antarctica. And so then I started thinking about that. I want to go and do that. I'm definitely going to do that. But it's taken me, like it's now 11 years since the Channel Swim, and it's probably been only in the last 12 months that I've realised I did what I wanted to do. And it's all very well for people to try and encourage you to go on and do other things, but I feel satisfied personally, and I need to be satisfied with that. that, That's how I feel. Oh, that resonates. I'm so (laughs) glad we're having this conversation because... um, it, it hits me in my heart, like when you talk about, I mean, you can clearly hear someone doing it for the right reasons. And I, I think it's so rare that you hear that. But it's also so rare that people can acknowledge that um, though after you do achieve that life-changing moment, that there will be a hole. And I think mm-hmm. that the lesson in that is that as people who work with people, kids and adults alike how important it is to have this education or to hear people's stories where they we can hear that happening because I don't think when we talk about goals or setting aspirations do we think about what happens afterwards Mm, that's exactly right and that that for me was part of that perfect storm that was my struggle and I I took about 10 years as well to get out of my own struggles because no one had ever really told you, well, what happens when you become a world champion? You suddenly like you're the one, you'd gone from being the one chasing people to being the one being chased mm. and feeling like you were running away from things and not knowing well, what's the next step, what's the next goal? Do I, do I have to be a double world champion? Or, or you know, people started talking about well, Olympics. You can be an Olympian. And so then you start thinking, well, maybe, yeah, maybe I should be an Olympian. Maybe I should be a marathon runner. And it's so easy to get blown onto tracks that are not necessarily your pathway. That's, and that's what I was travelling. That's what I what I felt I was traveling and I I couldn't get off that treadmill it was like I had to keep running forwards to be able to do yeah and and I've now found because I've always been driven by goals I've always been I always seemed to have to have a goal in my life to pursue just mm. it just keeps me going it gives me mm. something to work towards but it's for me in the past it's always had to be swimming related mm. or exercise related and also that realisation in the last, say, 12 months that, you know, you don't need to go and do anything else. You've achieved what you've wanted to do in the pool and in the open water. Um, it's now realising that my goals can be something totally independent <laughs> of water. 
you yeah. know and um that's been that's been great for me to realize mm. that you know I, I want to see a bit of the world now and enjoy it without smelling of chlorine and having to take my bathers 10 pairs of bathers and yeah. everything with me when I go away um isn't that fascinating and have a holiday holiday yeah not swimming related yeah, yeah. I, I really like uh struggled with the goal setting process a lot over sort of four years up until about 12 months ago where I started to really detest the word goal and I'd mm. get a bit prickly when people talked about their next goal because for that high or that type A achieving brain, you know, a bit like your daughter and her brain, you have that sort of pass or fail mentality around yes. goals. And working with um, with this gentleman, Jeremy, um, on the internal chat of learning to understand how to redefine that concept of success so that you can have a goal but it's got uh, a, a more friendly yes <laughs> a friendly yeah. look like yes. if you're drawing it it would look more like a teddy bear rather than a grizzly bear um and so I'm wondering whether like what does success sort of mean to you now do you have you ever thought about that I have very recently actually because I'm tr- I still swim like I still enjoy it because I like feeling fit and healthy yeah and I've sort of been shying away from competing in Masters events because for me, when I compete, I need to win <laughs> and I need to be able to swim the times that I set myself. And recently I've been thinking, you know, the success is I'm 50 and I'm still able to get in there and still do that and still train and still compete and enjoy it. And I need to realise that that's a success. It's not the end result. It's the fact that I turn up and I can compete and whatever I produce on the day is the best because I, I always give 100%. And if that's 10 seconds off what I swam two weeks ago, so be it. Mm. Um, so I'm working a lot on that because I've got this headspace at the moment that the exp- – and it's, it's internal pressure I'm putting myself because nobody cares if I win or not <laughs> but I'm feeling that when I swim people expect me to win so I have to win mm. so I'm trying to redefine that whole word in my head now mm. um, I was having a chat with one of the young master swimmers who um, lives up the north the northwest and I was saying to her you know the fact that we turn up is more important than what actually happens in the yes, pool. Yes. And um, she came back and said that to me. She said, I really needed to hear that because I'm at that stage at the moment with my family, as young as they are, um, I can't do what I want to do and I need to realise the same thing. Yeah. That's really interesting. And I don't even think it's just turning up that for me would feel like the success, but it's willingly diving into that pool with an ability to say whatever happens, happens. Yes. But I'm going to give it my best shot. Yes. Because um, I do think – so where I've come to in the last 12 months is I do really honestly believe we do need goals. We do need things that hold us a little bit true and help us to live life on the edge. Um, and for me, that's my definition of success is my willingness to walk to that place of discomfort and, and be willing to kind of wander there for a while. Like I'm not going to live there permanently, but I'm, I want to know what it feels like on that edge. Mm. And so my – definition of of failure then is to not be willing to go there and um, my last big hairy audacious goal was over summer where we ran into federation peak which is this really ugly beautiful but ugly mountain full of mud and swamp and roots and very unrunnable 
and it was pouring with rain and it was like quarter to four in the morning and we're lying in the van and the rain's like beating on the roof and I'm in my nice warm down sleeping bag and my <laughs> husband's lying there with his arm draped over me and I'm like <laughs> I want to get out I want to get out <laughs> but you know you lie there in that moment and you're like you know am I ready for this have I done the training yes have I got the mindset that would allow me to to just be having a go yes do I know how to fuel myself and have all those knowledge and skills yes so what is like am I going to be safe enough out there maybe but yes certainly at the beginning yeah. so why wouldn't I just get out of this and, do and have a go yeah and then it took the pressure off needing to kind of reach the summit and I mean we did but but the whole way then was just about being on a journey rather than this pressure of like feeling like you're going to fail if you don't reach the summit. And I, I think for me, that was the biggest lesson of like learning that it's not just about how fast you go and yeah, what you achieve. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. You know, I think if I hadn't made the English Channel swim, I would have been disappointed. But I had done a lot of work on it was the journey that was more important that. than the end destination. Yeah. yeah. So I'd done a lot of work of that, and I try now to bring that into what I do now. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. It's difficult though. Yeah. It is. It's a hard one, but yeah. Do you feel like those lessons though that you've had now have already started preparing you for that inevitable process that we will all get to, and I think it's already happening for me of slowing down and, and getting older. And, Definitely. Yeah. You know, and that's that's why I think I've really had to redefine success because I have noticed that in the last 12 months, not only have, um, you know, am I personally satisfied with what I've done, but I've also realised I am slowing down. So that's, you know, things that used to feel easy, like swimming, training, it, it's doesn't feel easy anymore. It's hard work and that's an aging thing, you know, I'm sure it is. But I can still I can still do 4K sessions, mm-hmm. um, but I just still I can't do them like I used to do them. Mm-hmm. So do you put more emphasis on recovery now? Like, Definitely. Yeah. So, you know, even for my channel swim as a youth, I flogged myself, you know, 10, 11 sessions a week. I I my biggest week when I was swimming for the channel and I was 39 years of age was 80 kilometers. Oh. Now, these days, you know, I do between 12 and 16K a week at the absolute most, sometimes not even that much. And I find this week I've done four sessions um, and I swam yesterday morning, I've swum this morning, but I really felt it this morning. Mm -hmm. I feel I need a day in between sessions now Mm -hmm. um, just to let my body recover. And I find, uh, you know, I've I've got a bike that I really enjoy riding now Mm -hmm. and doing a little bit of Mm cross-training even just walking uh, my hips aren't allowing me to run anymore which is something I've got to become used to but I can still walk and I love walking mm-hmm. and I you know that cross training still being able to get out and get active it doesn't have to be in the pool or mm-hmm. in the open water it's really interesting mm-hmm. so how long did it take you to recover after the channel swim physically so we talked about the mental side of it um, I came out of the water fully for six weeks and then got back in um I reckon and I I swam at the world masters champs the following year and swam exceptionally like times that I was swimming when I was a kid and I reckon that was the aftermath of all that prep I'd done for the channel because I hadn't done anything differently but then I really fell in a hole I reckon it took me a good 12 months to fully um to fully 
well, to fully recover physically, like, mm. yeah. That's interesting. That's actually really, really interesting. And I don't doubt that for a second, mm. but I think we underestimate how much time our bodies take to recover. Yeah. I was really, like, I was still swimming, but I felt fatigued, and I felt fatigued for a very long time. I think it's when the physical will meets that huge emotional investment I think that's when the physical recovery takes a long time like I could go and do a six hour just happy-go-lucky run on the mountain probably cover a large distance you know relatively compared to say going and doing a six hour race which for me I'm 100% invested Mm. in and I've trained for it for a long period of time and I'm emotionally a bit fragile but excited but nervous but fear and that will burn me for like months and I I really don't think we appreciate that mental emotional toll that Mm. then I think it must must do something with your cortisol levels and disruption. I'm sure it does actually because I I mean I find that now um I've just had two weeks holidays um school holidays and felt great with all my exercise that I did Mm. been back at work a week and I tell you what how I compare how I feel today how I felt today Mm. when I was found this morning to how I felt last Friday Mm. poles apart yeah when you were training for the channel swim did you notice a disruption in hormones, female hormones? I just had a curiosity. Yeah, I did actually. Like my my period stopped um, mm. with the increase of work, and I don't know if that was also stress related as well. Mm. Um, sleeping patterns—you would think you'd be sleeping a lot more, but they were actually quite disrupted. Mm. Um, and I was quite emotional. Like yeah. I found that I was, I wouldn't say quite, I was very emotional. I used to tear up quite often yeah. about the silliest things. Yeah. 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 I yeah. cried at Ice Age. It's the only yeah. movie I've ever cried in. <laughs> and it was during a period of hard training. <laughs> yeah. No, I used to, yeah, I used to get really teary yeah. um, and emotional. And I'm sure that was all tied up with hormonal yeah. imbalance during that time. It definitely is because mm. the, um, the master hormone for women and men, but mainly women, is, um, is the same hormone that is used to produce cortisol. So if your body is prioritizing cortisol and adrenaline and noradrenaline to kind of keep you in that athletic cycle, it'll take away from all your female hormones. And it's just really That's interesting because um, female hormones are actually really, really critical for recovery mm. as well. And they're really critical, obviously, for your stabilization of moods. And they develop a lot of your personality. So it's why, like, elite athletes can, you know... <laughs> change so much in that period of leading up to these really large events and also people working in like stress is the same whether it comes from that physical source or that desperate willpower to achieve something or yeah. something huge happens in your life that you're dealing with or work is just freaking hard every yeah. day yeah yeah and it's when you get the combination of all of them that the yeah that the trouble can kick in but i think Again, it comes back to education and being able to realise, oh, yeah, no, I'm recognising this could be happening, therefore what can I change in my environment? And um, it's really interesting working with athletes when they're in that that cycle. And it can be a positive cycle. It doesn't have to be a negative stress connotation. But you're saying to them, like, oh, what can we do? And they're like, oh, I can't possibly quit my job. And I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> We're not talking about quitting your job. But, like, could you yeah. get to bed earlier? Is there yeah. something in your 
diet you could clean up you know is there a chance that you can put your feet up at lunchtime rather than walk around the playground you know that these little tiny changes you can make can be the thing that can pull a body back into a, a happier place yeah definitely so definitely but again not something I felt like we learned as young students no. or athletes no definitely not I'm probably again only in the last 10 years have picked up on all of that yeah because recovery was still getting out of bed at 4 30 in the morning and going training yeah you just did an easier session and now you know your body does need to stop to recover mm. it's it's fascinating it's mm. so fascinating so is it, i know that you've just actually got back from racing somewhere am i right in saying that did i see something on social media where you had done some competitions and were pretty pretty happy with it yeah so i went and swam in perth a couple of months ago at the australian masters championships and that was interesting where we talk about redefining ourselves and our expectations you know i had really lost my swimming mojo and my confidence in myself and um it was massive for me to even get myself to perth because i'd entered when I came back from Scotland, when I did the Lockhoon swim last year, I came back and immediately thought I need a new goal. So I entered then. That was in September. The comp wasn't until April, but I thought, right, I need it. And then, of course, I guess I fell in a little bit of a hole after Lockhoon as well, and I had to climb out of that and get myself back on track. And I just didn't feel I'd done the work that I needed to do to go over to Perth and swim at my best. So... Uh, thankfully I've got some fantastic friends who were competing as well and they got me on that block that first day and it just took that one event and diving off the block and I was loving it it was a 400 freestyle and I was thinking this is my happy place I'm back in the zone I'm loving it and even though my times over the four-day meet got progressively worse because my (laughs) fitness wasn't there it was the best thing I could have done. Oh, how amazing. And, um, yeah, I think it was five five Australian titles I came home with. Whoa. Wow. And, um, yeah, and it made me realise, you know, it, 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 and I did win a silver medal as well, and I just realised, yeah, you know, you've just got you've got to push yourself, be out of your comfort zone. That was a real – that was huge for me because I really – and I'd lost my all my confidence in myself, which mm. – is crazy because I come across as being quite a bubbly, happy person, but internally I'm fighting demons every day. So that was, yeah, that was a big thing for me to do that. Um, but a very positive thing for me to do as well. Really? Yeah. I call those little demons my inner imp. And yes. I imagine him with his little horns, but he giggles, <laughs> like he cackles a little yeah. bit. Um, but he, he's a pretty lazy little creature. And when you set a big goal and you can kind of run away from him fairly quickly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just that self-talk, you know, I can do this. I just, yeah, it was, but isn't that interesting? It is. Do you, um, have an awareness of, of what your values are? Have you ever like sort of sat down? I mean, I think often we, we kind of roughly know them, but sat down and penned them down on paper. I haven't. I think yeah. it's something hard to do about yourself. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I've had many students over the years that have sent me messages or emails just to say you, you don't realise how much of an impact you've had on my life. And I think, really? Like, really? And you don't. 
it's beautiful to hear because you don't realise often that a simple word of encouragement mm. can make a massive change to somebody else's life. But I, I find it really hard to, and I don't know if that's my insecurities or my lack of confidence or what, but to see myself in the light that other people often see me. What does self-compassion mean to you, Anne? Out of curiosity. Um, taking care of yourself, being mm. kind to yourself. Yeah. 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 I, <laughs> this, that was another question that I got asked in my soul-searching journey. And, um, and I was totally stumped. Or I actually was totally stumped. And then I was like, come on, Hannah, you can do this. This is, <laughs> this is like one of those questions. You know, it's a trick question. And then I was like, oh, I had a massage yesterday. And he looked at me and he goes, what, for recovery or self-compassion? <laughs> and I just couldn't. I didn't even know there was a difference. Yes, <laughs> isn't that interesting? Yeah. 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 I don't think we're very good at looking after ourselves. But the fact that times. you know you know what self-recovery, I mean, self-compassion is, mm. I think, is a huge step. Mm. Because I think you, you probably, I don't think you ever turn off that voice. I don't think you, I think it's like a radio, you, you can turn it down, but you can't turn it off. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think like having that awareness that it is a challenge, that concept of self-compassion means that you can be okay with it. Um, and actually like I, I have been helping an athlete and she messaged me and said, Hannah, I'm, I'm really scared. I've got this big job interview this week. It's for my dream job. Um, I've been training quite well, but she's also just achieved a really big goal for her. So she's in that post race Mm. Um, she had the euphoria now she's in the lull and um, I'm really scared that my um, eating challenges and the little inner imp starting to to talk to me again and I said it's really good that you're recognizing that and that you are reaching out because you now know we won't win (laughs) because he doesn't like the spotlight being put on him either yeah I like that analogy actually yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) it was fascinating so um so am I allowed to then ask what's next for Anne? What's next for me? I, in relation to my swimming, I don't have any swimming goals at this point in time. Um, at this point in time, and I'm at a good stage of my life. Like I'm feeling content with where I'm at in relation to work, in my personal life. Um, you know, I've met an amazing man and I'd sort of resigned myself to the fact that maybe my life, I was destined to be by myself. Um, and that was okay. And I'd reached that realization at the end of the year. And, you know, um, my ex-husband and I have been apart 11 years, 10 years now. And so I decided I made, um, a pact with myself. It was time to go back to me and I was, Anne Henderson, so I decided it was time to go back to that name and to, to put all those changes in place. And I'd also resign myself to the fact that, that that you know, it's okay. I, I'm okay by myself. I don't need anybody else in my life to... And then he came along. So, you know, I'm, I'm in a happy place there and I just don't feel... I think because I am now in a happy place, I don't feel I need to be pursuing anything big, but never yeah. say never... Um, I have committed to go to the Pampac Games oh, in wow, cool. um, November on the Gold Coast. So that will be my next um, swimming challenge and that will both be both um, competition in the pool and there's also an open water event. So I will go over and do those. I'm enjoying my swimming again um, with the group that I'm swimming with and so that's terrific. 
Um, yeah, and I, th- I just think I want to. I, I just want to cement who I am as a person. Yeah, and that's enjoy everyday experiences and if opportunities present themselves. Don't knock them back. You know, I'm happy to. I guess that's where. Um, I've always pursued opportunity. If opportunity come my way, comes my way and it appeals to me, then I'll chase it, whatever it is, I guess. Oh, <laughs> I, I love this conversation. Like, if I had a role model, it would be you, Anne, and I mean that really openly because you don't meet many people who, are, who put understanding themselves and being them, authentically them, unapologetically them, very often ever um you know often when I ask people like oh who's who's x who's Sarah you know it's I'm a runner or I'm a teacher or I'm a and and they're not they don't I've never met anyone who can grow like I'm Anne and I just want to be Anne and that I'm okay with that and then I'll go and yeah pancakes oh yeah that's right they're up they're coming up in (laughs) September like it's it's so rare and I just I honestly wish that if there was one thing I could change about that story that I've written down on paper and probably you would feel this way is that you were a bit more open to understanding all of that when you were younger. Absolutely. Because I feel like that understanding yourself is is the foundation to everything and, and relationships and what you can achieve in your sport or your career because when you're unapologetically you, you show the world you. So you're going to surround yourself by people who love you, not the other Anne that you were trying to be. Exactly. And that's what you see so often. You know, I see that in athletes that that I'm involved with, in students that I teach, they're trying to be something they're not Mm. for the sake of somebody else. Yeah. And I wish, I really wish that I had been Anne a long time ago as well. Yeah. Yeah, because I've noticed it having... um, having a business and having you know we've got 18 staff that you know rely on us for their pocket money or their full you know paying their mortgages off and raising children and it's a huge amount of pressure mm. but I think one thing I learned was that Graham and I as the, the leaders in that team we had to be unapologetically us because that was the only way we were going to get people to come and work for us in our team who would be unapologetically them and want to work with us and our personalities. Um, and that, that would be the only way we would attract people from the community who were unapologetic, unapologetically them and loved what we did. Definitely. Did that make sense? And, it does. And, it, and it, learning that, and so it came from me doing my internal work and realising I think there's something in this and then putting it into the business itself is just mean suddenly I don't have the fear. I don't feel like I'm trying to run quickly towards something to like make sure it happens. You just got your own feet on the ground and it doesn't feel like quite a crumbly Jenga tower. Yeah, so I think it just keeps coming back to like, well, this is me. Absolutely, <laughs> and being normal. happy with who we are yeah. too. And being vulnerable. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, my God, I'm, am I allowed to have a favourite conversation? I don't know if I'm allowed to have a favourite conversation, <laughs> but this is my favourite conversation. <laughs> oh, Annie, you're too kind. No, it's awesome. So thank you. That's my pleasure. Cool.